0: You're listening to MEX Design Talk, the podcast for the MEX community, where we discuss emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. You can find show notes to accompany this episode at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section, with links to everything we discuss. This episode was published on Friday, the 11th of March, 2016. edition, we dissect the user experience of content consumption, we get schooled in the BuzzFeed generation when we interview their design manager Sabrina Majeed, and we have a user story all about an elderly lady at a bus stop who's worried about her sports TV subscription and her Game Boy. How are you doing today?
1: Hi there, Merrick. I am very well, thanks. Um, it is a particularly beautiful evening here in Northwest London. Um, yeah, very good. And you, and yourself?
0: Yeah, keeping well. I think last time we spoke, you were on your travels, but you're back in London now. You say?
1: Yes, I, I was in Warsaw, which was uh, rather sort of snowy. Well, it wasn't quite snowy. It was grey um, uh, and and cold. Um, although the food was was warming and delicious. Um, but today it's 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 cold in london, but uh the the light is absolutely fantastic. I love this time of year. Um, the light's sort of getting richer in the evenings, and the thing that you haven't really heard throughout the winter is a uh, much bird song, but uh, there is also some bird song out there right now.
0: yeah, spring is in the air, I guess uh, in fact, I took the opportunity to go out for a quick stroll up here in Norfolk on the coast to uh, clear my head and get thinking about the topics for this episode before this and enjoyed similarly glorious evening light out there just as the sun was starting to go down. So it's put me in good mind to get stuck into this topic of ours, which for this edition is all about uh, consuming behaviours. So we've looked in the previous episodes at various different modes and slants on experience design. But for this one, we wanted to focus in on how people's behavior changes when they're consuming information in some way, shape or form. Give a a tangible example. If you think about something like watching a video on an iPad, it's not always the same activity. On the one hand, that could be an experience that you share with a couple of people sitting around the table of a noisy coffee shop and you're watching a funny clip from Facebook. But on the other hand, it could be under a very different set of circumstances, where you're having a very immersive individual experience, you might be, say, watching a training video with your headphones on, absorbed on the commute on the way to work. So it can take a, a number of different kind of manifestations, uh, and it's becoming really quite important because consumption is the dominant mode for the majority of mobile device users most of the time now, even above communicating, which I suppose was the original purpose of smartphones and and mobile phones before that. It's taking up really huge swathes of our our waking hours. Uh, So how you design good user experiences for that kind of thing is complicated uh, and it's something which um, is very closely linked to how we then move into other modes of Uh, experience design other ways in which we're interacting with these devices so it's kind of integral to the the whole thing um now in advance of this episode we've both been having a look around to find some examples of this to talk about to to get the conversation going and i'm wondering what you have come up with this time alex
1: well i I came up with a couple of things but i'm i'm going to stick with my original thought which was um fair enough around around dating apps now um I'm not suggesting that uh, people end up consuming their dates uh, unless they are fruity dates, um, but the uh, the experience that some of these apps ha- have now created are, are much more to do with uh, consumption and entertainment rather than communicating. Um, and uh, every, everyone knows about Tinder these days, I think. Um, and, and uh, how simply it is about looking at pictures and, and, and swiping.
0: Well, it's almost become one of those verb things where people talk about, okay, we're going to Tinder our app now, in the same way that people sometimes talk about, you know, I need this to be Ubered, like it's this kind of solution to a number of different experience design problems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, not, not being a Tinder user I, I, I was I was my, my interest was piqued recently by an article I read in The Economist this this was just last week um, and uh, it mentioned a couple of apps uh, one called bumble and one called happen now I'd heard of happen before because um, it has it has in the past had ads all over the London underground bumble I'd never heard of before um, and I was intrigued I, so I, I I downloaded it and, and started having a look at it just to see, how it works. Um, one of the intriguing things that was mentioned in the Economist is that um, if the two if two people happen to match, the uh, the person um, who is allowed to contact the other has to be a woman. The woman has to make the first move, and the idea is that it attracts women who are, well, as the Economist put it, uh, more feminist and more uh, enlightened. Um, now. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Um, but the experience is still quite similar in that you are effectively just consuming images quite casually. Um, and one of the uh, bizarre things that that happens on Tinder is that people just don't communicate after they've matched. But the whole point of matching is that you can then actually have some kind of contact with the, 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 the other person, but uh, the, the phenomenon is well known um, that you can't, that, that people don't speak to each other. And um, it turns out that um, with Bumble, something similar happens because the woman has 24 hours in which to um, put out a message or that match disappears. And um, (laughs) what appears to happen is that most matches just end up disappearing.
0: It sounds like if we abstract this, if you like, from dating as a specific example, what's going on there is if we take this as an example of consumption, the provider of the service is imposing some kind of limitation around the way in which you can consume uh, and using that, if you like, as a a prompt, a way of guiding people through the service. Is that a uh, correct understanding of it, do you think?
1: Yes, I, I think it is to an extent. Um, I think they're also trying to provide some sort of incentive to, to overcome that lack of communication, to, to take it, in fact, from, from consumption to communication. But it still seems as though the overriding motivation for uh, people's activity within the app is fairly casual consumption.
0: Yeah, that is a an interesting thought, and I wonder whether that's a reflection of the existing analog behavior here uh, in the sense that um maybe when you think about dating in the abstract sense, um, there is a portion of that, even if you think about the existing analog examples before we had all of these digital devices. Which is about you know being in the bar, the restaurant, being in, you know, going through life in general, and I suppose uh, evaluating the people around you and thinking about is that a possible match? Is that someone that I'd like to to talk to? And perhaps that is analogous to that sort of initial consumption behavior, which goes on within dating apps now. Which, when it's seen in the digital environment, you know people recognize or, or point to as maybe being this. Um Slightly unseemly kind of behaviour or slightly um or, or, or feels like a very new and sometimes slightly sort of daunting thing about how this is transforming the the face of dating, but maybe that behaviour has always, already existed there in the same way that you know a lot of the things that we see around media consumption the digital environment uh, actually you can draw lines from existing traditional behaviours and see how they then extrapolate um quite uh, quite easily into the, the digital world
1: and, and I'm sure that's right but but one of the things that I've sort of felt is that um, the 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 activity of, of effectively scrolling through images I mean you're, you're, you're swiping through but it, the it, the activity is is not dissimilar to uh, to the activity on Instagram now it's not swiping on Instagram it's scrolling but it's still you know a uh, a finger brings you a new face and and um that's uh the the difference between the two is 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 really quite uh, small
0: yeah i mean that um perhaps shines a bit of a light on if you like the role of design patterns within this kind of area that even where you've got perhaps slightly different motivations or you've got slightly different outcomes there are these dominant design patterns which are emerging around apps which have an element of consumption to them. And that list of scrolling images is a pretty common one. I mean, we see it with other things as well, like uh, Pinterest, for instance, which you know has really perfected that idea that you can scroll essentially ad infinitum, that you never run out of new images to browse and to potentially do something with, or simply to just provide you know, visual stimuli as you, you go through them. Um, the whole thing is built around the notion that you should never come to the end of a page. There should always be something more to keep you consuming at it, which perhaps is one of the the properties of consumption in the digital environment, which is rather different to the analog world, is that uh, there is that sense of the infinite that you know, you're never going to get to a point where you can say, "Yep, I'm done with that. Close the book. It's finished."
1: Yes, that's right. And I think sometimes the experience of of even text based, um, uh, dare I call it media like Twitter, uh, you can be scrolling and scrolling and and, uh, and 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 never get to to the present time. You're still going through the past. Especially when Twitter reminds you that you know things happened while you're away, and would you like to see what happened while you're away as well?
0: I was looking around for an example uh, here as well to talk about. And that kind of idea of the finite versus the infinite um, was something which is very much on my mind. And serendipitously, uh, someone tweeted a link to this app called 72 Seasons. Have you had a chance to have a look at this yet?
1: Uh, I did, Mariak. It's rather beautiful, I thought, actually. Um, the the, the combination of of uh, text and visuals was was, was lovely. But uh, what what was your thoughts about it?
0: Well, I'll describe the experience briefly. I mean, it is one of those things which I think you have to go and check out for yourself to really get a, a proper feel for it. But the seventy two seasons part refers to this Japanese tradition of dividing the year into essentially micro seasons of so about five days each, and the app picks up on this idea. And uh, it gives you a name and then a series of media around each of those 72 micro-seasons. So at the moment, we're in one where they talk about the idea that the sea ice is just starting to melt and the fish are coming to the surface. So when I looked at it, when I first downloaded it, it had some beautiful imagery of that. And then there was some poetry associated with it. And it tells you a little bit about the background of the season. And there was also a recipe and some photography of some food around it. And it was a, a lovely experience to consume. It was something very different, but also crucially, once I'd read that and once I'd consumed those few different forms of media that they'd associated with that particular season, that was it. It was done. I'd reached the the end of that particular season and I wouldn't get any more until the next season crops up, which I believe will be in a, a few days' time.
1: And and so how did that make you feel? Did it did you did you feel after all the other uh media that you might have consumed, did you did you feel Restricted uh, and frustrated, or, or was it somehow maybe peaceful and relaxing, and 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 gave you a sense of of, of finality?
0: Yeah, I, I relished that part of it. I mean, my day to day with the kind of work that I do is very much exposed to all of those different services which are built around the concept of the infinite. So I use Twitter. I look at things like Pinterest. I have all of these different news sources, which I'm looking at to keep track of trends within experience, design and technology. And if I wanted to, I could spend every hour of every day consuming that stuff and I would never get to the end of it. And that does create a you know, a, a strange feeling. You have to kind of give up on the, the notion that you're trying to complete a particular task around that and just realize that it's this sort of ongoing stream that you can dip in now. So, but 72 seasons... Was very different, and it sort of has naturally fallen into a category of something that I would do outside the flow of my day to day work. You know, something which I think I would look to as a more relaxing experience, that the, the user experience had that sort of vibe to it. And that was reflected as well in the visual presentation of it. And this is why I urge people to go and have a look at this. I think it's for, available for iPhone and for Android. i was tested it out on, on both of those kind of devices. And in both cases, the visual presentation of it is something where you can see it's been done with that sort of um, relaxation in mind. Um, so it, it was a, a, you know, a, a very calming experience in that regard. The other thing though, which um, did occur to me about it is that I really appreciated the pairing of those different kinds of media. Yeah, so often when you're looking at one particular service, if it's Twitter or Pinterest or something like that, it's, it, it, it's dominated by one form of media rather than another. But this was quite diverse. You know, there was the photography there, there was recipes, there was poetry, there was a bit of commentary, there was some information about the history. So it, it was quite a diverse experience in that regard, but it, it was self-contained.
1: And that, that leads me to ask the question... Did you then feel as though you wanted to do something else uh, f- as a result of what you'd just seen? D- you know, did it give you an urge to, to create something or just to, to pause or, or or something else of that kind?
0: It, it certainly made me reflect on how it related to my own life. I mean, I live in uh, a fairly remote coastal part of the UK on the, the East Anglian coast. And one of the things that struck me was the similarities between those Japanese seasons that I saw and the ones that we experience here, which had never really occurred to me. I mean, Japan uh, is not somewhere that I've visited previously. And in many ways, for someone coming from a British sort of Western culture and upbringing is perhaps one of the most different places that you could go and visit. And yet here was something where the kind of seasons that they're describing really resonated with me. And... For me, it sort of ended with that thought. I'm not sure if perhaps I would have gone on to, to do something else with it. But actually, my partner who I showed the app to um, felt that very strongly, I think, and has gone on to now start to write up uh, and to pair up some of the photographs that she's taken over the course of the different seasons here in the UK with those Japanese seasons. Uh, and I think is you know quite keen to actually create some kind of output of her own off, off the back of that related to where we live. So it's something which has definitely prompted her into a, a mode of, of creativity. Um, and you know perhaps that's one of the things which we need to understand about the mode of consumption overall is that it, it can rarely be seen solely on its own, it's something which needs to be considered in the context of the other modes that lead up to it and the other modes that might lead from it. Even when it can be a very immersive thing for the moment that you're there, it can often be something which then leads you to want to go off and explore further or create something, or it may be that you come to it through some kind of uh, mode of of exploration where you're looking for stimuli, uh, and that that informs how you then behave during that time when you're consuming.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Um, Now, I I think I mentioned to you before we, we we started today that I've uh, recently um, got rather addicted to, to a series of podcasts um, I, I've in the past listened to some podcasts but but not not hugely um, but as as part of this this process of, of uh, learning about how podcasts work I uh, sought out um, other possibilities and to you know just to listen to see how things are done and uh, a close friend of mine um, recommended a podcast by um this american life called serial and uh, over the course of 10 or 12 weeks in 2014 the presenter of the podcast detailed an investigation that she'd performed over the course of a year about uh a murder that occurred in 1999 and the investigation that she'd gone into it and uh was trying to weigh up whether or not this 17-year-old boy who was convicted of murdering his ex-girlfriend uh, was, in fact, guilty. And it was, it was brilliant. It, it, it is brilliant, and it's there, and it's available for you to, to, uh, to listen to it uh, week by week as it was presented at the time. Or you can do it as I did it, which was to, to snatch any moment, um, any moment possible to, to, to listen to the next episode and uh, i suddenly went from uh, the casual listening of of uh some podcasts that i have listened to in the past like the free economics talk show through to um trying to find any any moment that is that is potentially downtime like walking around the aisles of sainsburys or um or or catching the tube or or whatever it happened to be um to to listen to this uh fascinating story a fascinating investigation, uh, and and suddenly I, I was I was binge podcasting in the same way that you might binge uh, binge on, on on Breaking Bad on Netflix.
0: When you were listening to this, say in in Sainsbury's as you describe, uh, how did that affect your experience of both the podcast and the experience of being in a supermarket? Do you think it changed those experiences for you?
1: Well, it certainly changed the experience of being in a supermarket. I. I, I tend to quite enjoy going shopping. I think about uh, the food there and, and, and think about what I might produce. I'm, I, I will often think, well, I'm, I'm going to buy enough food for three dinners. And, and as I go around, I, I, I sort of decide on what I'm going to put together. But because I was thinking less about flavors and, and things of that kind, I, and I, I, I was absolutely immersed in, in what I was listening to. Um, and, and so, I rather forgot the time uh, and 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 the place uh, of of sainsbury's and, and my my sort of half weekly shop um, and and I th- and I'm pretty sure that I was physically reacting to what I was hearing, gasping or, or or laughing or nodding or shaking my head. I'm pretty sure I even at one point said, "Oh my God, that's incredible uh, out loud you know and I, <laughs> And I wasn't referring to the butter,
0: <laughs> and it's been baked beans for dinner ever since. <laughs>
1: Well, I I managed to stake in chips.
0: Well, that's good going. So I think it it kind of raises this question around focus. Uh, And this is something actually that we started looking at seriously within the MEX initiative way back in 2009, when it was becoming apparent that actually digital experience design was something that shouldn't be considered simply as how do you design as effectively as possible for a single mobile device, for instance, for the screen of a particular smartphone, but actually something that you need to consider in this much wider context of, well, that person's phone may be sitting next to them on the sofa while they've got the TV on in the background and while they've got their laptop you know, sitting to one side and you know, they've got all of these different stimuli going on. And at the time we called it multi-touchpoint experience design, and we had some uh, people from Um, Goldsmiths University came along where they had looked at this from a psychology perspective uh, and they called it this um, phenomenon of continuous partial attention. The idea that people increasingly were dedicating little slices of their attention span to many different forms of media at the same time. And, you know, I think one form of that can be the physical environment around you, like you say, when you're walking around Sainsbury's and you're doing things that perhaps you wouldn't normally do or you're missing things that normally you would be absorbed in within that physical environment because you have that kind of digital consumption going on. But I think it's particularly acute when it's multiple digital devices at the same time. And this is a behavior now which is you know, really quite widespread. I mean, there are various different studies out there. Google have done quite a lot of work on this and put out a a free study that we'll link to within the show notes where they looked at this and found that you a really high percentage, the vast majority of people now consume multiple media sources together at any one time. Uh, And that really does change the way you have to Design for these things. You know, you've got to think about which bits of people's attention span is where at any given time. And, and, and that, that throws up some different design requirements.
1: Well, the television industry is uh, grappling with this. Um, they, they've long been talking about the second screen experience. Um, I think that what the, the reality, uh, I think they've come to the, real, the realization now that the second screen is not anything to do with what they're what is being seen on tv but rather um something that can be completely different something that distracts from in fact the tv rather than adding to that experience um yes occasionally it can be that the 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 viewer is is engaging in social media activity that is linked to what they're watching but they could also just be scrolling through twitter and reading about something completely separate
0: very much so um you know how people are dividing that attention span uh really, I think, goes on to then inform how you might design in response to that. Uh, It reminds me of an interesting moment that we had at one of our MEX events a few years back. Uh, I'm not sure if you were there for this one, Alex, but there was um, a lady called Sophia Svanterson, who's the founder of Ocean Observations, a Swedish design consultancy. And she came along specifically to talk about what happens when people are in what you might call an explorative mode, perhaps just prior to getting into a piece of serious consumption where they're sort of looking for something to focus their attention on. Uh, And she actually wrote us a poem for the conference where she described what that feels like for her. Um, And I thought I might just read it because it was something that she put together by her own admission very quickly just before she did her talk. But it went down rather well with the audience. And I think it reflects quite interestingly on this notion of, uh, of exploration. And it's all about the idea of going onto Pinterest to try and find something for her new home. She's looking for some stuff for DIY. And this is what happens. I got a new home and set out to explore for storage so pretty to build and adore. Inspiration I needed, let's Pinterest go for. Millions of gems, let's not ignore. But any that shimmers is not great decor. I'll focus on something and plywood ask for. I ponder through kitchens and beds, a French door. Oh, There are so many items to fall for. And Katie who pinned this, she also cares for. One foxy home in New York Times before. I follow, I read, and I scroll through first floor. But wait, it's a detour. Go back, let's restore. I better be careful. I'm lured through a trap door. But here is a pin from New Zealand decor. And top of the lake I do really care for. Hello, nifty Kiwis. I now come ashore. I got a new home and set out to explore. For storage so pretty to build in a door. Got lost in all content and forgot my first chore. I ended up ready and geared for the dance floor. So the moral of this story from Sophia is that she set out to buy storage and diy things for her new home and she actually ended up on pinterest buying a pair of shoes for the dance floor instead brilliant (laughs) is this an experience that resonates with you alex have you ever gone online to do one thing and found that you have been drawn off into to other paths by the the wondrous designs out there
1: i I can't say i bought a pair of heels while looking for uh, DIY material.
0: It's the first time uh, for everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but um, yeah, I think we all do. It. Uh, you know, we just get distracted so easily by by uh, whatever's out there. You, you 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 set off looking for one particular thing, and then you go down a rabbit hole. Um, I, I've done this even when just trying to research something, say on on Wikipedia, uh, and then you know I check that the the fact on Wikipedia is right by following the link to the uh, to the source, and then and then the source grabs me, and there's there's a whole bunch of stuff there, and, and before I know it, I, I I have actually forgotten what it was that I was setting out to check um, until until some time has passed, and I come back to my notes and go, oh yes, that's what I wanted to know, and uh, so what was the answer?
0: So I mean, on the one hand, that's the great beauty of digital, and if you think about you know, the underlying fabric of the web, it was all about that concept of hyperlinking and the idea that you can see the depth behind things and you can link different concepts and stories and and media together. Um, So, you know, on on the one hand, I think it can be a very positive, uh, uplifting thing. And clearly, you've got to see this in the context of different types of users, because, you know, we tend to look at this from this very sort of Western viewpoint, developed economy viewpoint, if you like, of um, having too much of this stuff to explore. Uh, Whereas you can imagine that if you're getting your connection to the digital world for the very first time, actually having that vastness of content at your fingertips all of a sudden could be quite a a thrilling thing. So, you know, it has that side to it potentially as a positive thing as well. But if we accept that there is an issue for some users around this uh, overwhelming sense of there being um, an an infinity of content out there, if you like... um, it's intriguing to think about what are some of the design questions around how we can make that better for people. And I seem to recall you actually ran uh, one of our creative sessions at a previous MEX event where you looked at this very topic about how you restore focus to digital consumption. Uh, and you know I'm curious as to whether or not you think some of the principles that came out of that. Uh, are still valid today because this was a, a year or two ago now, but I, I think um, you know, thinking back, a lot of the stuff was probably quite portable from there.
1: Yes, that's right, and I, I think it was back in March twenty fourteen, which in, in technological terms is is at least two two eras. Um, there are definitely things there that, for me, uh, are are still absolutely pertinent. It, it, it was a very interesting exploration that uh, that that we had with the group, um, and they came up with five uh, principles for, for restoring focus to, to digital consumption. And, and if you think about how you're reading from a, a flat device, it, it's nothing like reading a newspaper which just has one uh, level of depth. With, with, with your mobile phone, you can have all sorts of levels of um, information that might ping up to the surface at any one time. And so one, one of the things that we were talking about is creating and, and respecting a hierarchy of visual depth. Um, and, and by this, what we really would meant is that things like notifications um, and other sorts of distractions um, that occur really should sit behind the main focus of what you're consuming so that you don't get distracted from, from that uh, main uh, item of consumption until you're done with it. And at that point, uh, something else can ping up um, and 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 draw your attention elsewhere. But otherwise, you end up, you know, after 200 words of text or or, or after you know two minutes of, of, of video, being disturbed by maybe a photograph a friend has sent you or or, or you know a a link to to another article, uh, and you end up not quite completing or, or fully immersing yourself. In any one piece of creativity in the end.
0: Well, that was an interesting way of thinking about it, giving it that um, uh, depth, because, you know, I think to some people immediately the mind goes to 3D interfaces, but I got the impression from your team that that was very much not what they were considering in that regard. This was more, if you like, about the hierarchy of information within a particular flow of consumption and how you could use, uh, I suppose, the concept of depth rather than actual depth to let people organize their engagement with it in in certain ways. Um, But the other one which came out of that, I mean, there were five of these these principles which um, we can link to in the show notes so people can go and take a look at them. But the other one which really caught my attention was this business about making a certain amount of consistency between the different touch points in people's lives, which is a tricky one to balance because on the one hand, you know, someone might be using a smartwatch uh, and they might be using a large flat screen TV on the wall to consume things. And on the face of it, those things can seem very different and maybe driven by very different interaction principles. Uh, and yet, when you're thinking about media experiences which span those, it seemed perhaps your group found that there was a need for certain elements of consistency between them so that users... Felt at home within that overall experience.
1: Yes, the, the idea wasn't necessarily to replicate something that works on a large screen onto a smaller screen. Um, it was more to do with the, if you like, the language of the interaction, um, possibly conveying similar or identical fonts, similar colours, similar types of layout, w- without trying to replicate exactly. And, and and you know this is done very well by 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 some. Uh, some sources but not so well by others uh, um, uh, if, if you look for example at well let's take a let's take a big one like Facebook you know they, they do it very well the mobile app is is, is superb but actually the mobile website um, uh, doesn't appear to have changed much at all and and, and, it's, and it seems fairly clear that uh, Facebook wants you to use the app not the not the website.
0: Your mention of Facebook is an interesting one because it, it gets you thinking about what all this means for big brands that have some kind of a stake in digital consumption in the future. Now, Facebook, for instance, has launched its video content recently and already is starting to get a a remarkably high number of views of video within that service. And it it makes me think, you know, what as a, a brand that has been or had at least one foot in the world of traditional media, what are some of the things that you should be thinking about when you're shaping your digital experiences for your users uh, as we move into the future and as we start to think about new forms of consumption?
1: Well, a few years ago, um, nearly 10 years ago, when I started working in the uh, internet TV field, uh, people were talking a lot about lean back and lean forward experiences um, th- this always grated with me, and-, and although those two terms are still fairly common, um, some of the work that's been done so by-, by, for example, Thinkbox, which is a- a- an industry body that represents commercial TV broadcasters in the UK, is, is to start thinking about a-, a wider palette of modes of consumption. So, for example, they-, they talk about things like unwind or connect or experience or indulge. And and just from those single words, you can get a feel for what they're getting at. I mean, unwind is is really about sitting down at the end of the day and just just relaxing, just letting everything just steam off, and 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 you know not worry about what it is that you're watching particularly. Whereas indulge is much more about uh, getting into the, the the meat of something that is uh, really engaging, some a really good piece of TV, and. Um, as brands whether media brands or not that are producing uh, content to consume uh, I think one of the challenges that they they must be aware of is not just to think about user personas but get past the user persona or at least enrich that user persona by thinking about their contexts their motivations and overall their objectives from a particular moment in time.
0: Well I suppose one of the positive things about that is that increasingly there are more data available that are going to be able to help companies to inform those sort of decisions and do them dynamically on the fly. Uh, And perhaps we can get to this point where um, we're getting these sort of hybrid experiences where part of the, the curation of the experience is coming from, if you like, the design thinking that has gone on into it, into the, the creation of that service. But part of it is also being driven dynamically in response to, to user behavior in real time. Uh, and that's something I think, which is only just starting to become available, only just starting to get the tools which uh, allow us to, to create those kind of uh, hybrid digital consumption experiences. But potentially, you know, it could be quite a, a thing shaping it in the future.
1: Well, I'm I'm currently doing a little bit of work with a startup called Mingle Vision. Uh, Mingle Vision is is, uh, based out of uh, the Wire Accelerator at the moment in in central London. Um, The the startup basically offers a service that gives the user much more control over their experience, particularly uh, for watching live sports events where they can choose the camera angle um, and, you know, really... by, by virtue of choosing a camera angle, can choose their, uh, their their watching experience. They can decide, uh, for example, in Formula One, which uh, which camera they're going to follow. So whether they're going to be in the cockpit with a particular driver or whether they're going to watch the cars going around a particular bend that's tricky. Um, and, and you know, that's fascinating from a user perspective. It really makes it so much more engaging. And and the result of that, of course, is that a broadcaster who picks up on this is, uh, is going to benefit from... Uh, viewers who are more engaged for a longer period of time.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about how that will actually manifest for individual users in different moments and, and how how many variations, if you like, there'll be of that kind of behavior with that service. That'll be an interesting one to, to track and to see what they actually find uh, that their users are doing with it. Uh, I suppose when I think about this from the perspective of, of brands um and you know companies which if you like want to have some kind of voice uh, around consumption in the digital future that the part which really intrigues me is what happens when you get different modes of user behavior intersecting with consumption. Now, you and I looked at this a bit in the context of what happens around, for instance, uh, that moment where a user is consuming something and then is inspired to create off the back of it and how you can create very specific user experiences to make that moment that much more fulfilling for the user. But I don't think it stops at uh, at creativity. I think there are some interesting things that you can do here around, for instance, something like communication and we're starting to see some of these interesting sort of prototypes and examples emerging where um, people are reimagining news services, for instance, as not something which is just a downstream for a media organization, but rather like an ongoing conversation between the user and that particular news organization. And it looks visually rather more like something that you would see in a stream of uh, text messages between one person and another, but actually the person that you're having that conversation with is the news organization and there's some kind of artificial intelligence engine powering it. I think that potentially gives rise to some quite interesting new experiences and new ways of engaging with this kind of media.
1: Do you have any particular um, services that you're thinking of here?
0: It actually reminds me of a talk that we had at a previous MEX event from a guy called Aaron Vasudeva, who was working for Pearson, the owners of the Financial Times at the time. And they had been experimenting with some ways that you could combine uh, something like an educational textbook with communication all within the same user experience flow. So this idea that you could be consuming information from the textbook, and then you could be having like a one-to-one conversation uh, with the authors behind it, or the people who are teaching the course and trying to combine those different modes together. And it wasn't something which was really for the commercial mainstream at the time, but it felt like there was something exciting there. And I think we're gonna see a lot more experiments in that area. So we should probably, wrap things up, it's been a, an interesting exploration of this whole notion of what it is to consume and how you might go about designing for that effectively. Um, but perhaps a good starting point for people who are interested in this would be uh, those principles that came out of your working session at the, the previous Meximet, Alex. Would you be able to put a link in the show notes to those so people can check those out?
1: Yes, absolutely. They'll be in the show notes. So if anyone wants to, to find out more about the work we did uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, please have a look there
0: great stuff and you can find those at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section be great to hear more feedback as well on how we're doing with the show you can reach alex and i at Mexfeed on twitter and it's been a pleasure to uh, talk to you today and um alex any final words from you
1: uh no absolutely mary that's been fantastic
0: Continuing our theme around the user experience of consuming content, I had a chance to chat with Sabrina Majid, a design manager at BuzzFeed. Some of you will remember Sabrina from an intriguing presentation she gave at MEX a couple of years back when she'd been working with a startup, trying to understand how you could create shared experiences around TV viewing. Even when people were in different places, different time zones but watching the same piece of TV content. It was a company called Mizo and did some pioneering work around context-aware experiences. She's had a a pretty varied career um, working for financial services organizations like Intuit and Venmo before going on to her current role at BuzzFeed. Now, I must admit, I am perhaps not uh, in the target demographic for the BuzzFeed generation as it's become called so I was very interested to talk to her about what's going on there and understand a bit more about this new way of consuming content which has become so big so quickly so here's my chat with Sabrina I hope you enjoy it and don't forget you can find links to all of the things that we talk about at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section Mm Welcome to the podcast, Sabrina, and thanks for taking the time to come on.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thinking back, uh, I guess it was a few years ago when you came over and spoke at our MEX event in London. And at the time, you had been working with uh, a startup all around context awareness and how you present content to people in an intelligent way associated with with media experiences. Um, But Prior to that, it seems like there had always been this interest with you in doing things around mobile and design. Where did that start for you? Where did that first interest in mobile come from?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I think it just happened that the iPhone came out while I was sort of towards the end of my design education in school. So it was just this new platform. And of course, like seeing the early work that started emerging on that platform. Um, just I think the capabilities that the early designers were coming up with, like the things that were possible and how that enabled like new design patterns really interested me. So at my job right before I joined that startup, I was working at a large company, into Intuit, um, like a financial accounting software company. There was uh, a coworker of mine who started a side project that was basically working on an iPhone app. And they asked me if I would say, help them out with the design work. So yeah. Um, I, basically, I got the opportunity to do that, and that app ended up being pretty successful. Um, it was a free app, but it was still successful in terms of downloads for the company. And that app got picked up by a few design blogs and started to realize, like, this is, I think was the constraints of the mobile format that I really enjoyed designing for. Um,
0: so can you remember what the name of the app was?
2: Yeah, yeah. It was called Weave. Um, I think they actually took it down <laughs> recently, like in the last year or so. but so, I mean yeah. that was a
0: pretty exciting time when the app store first emerged and people started creating uh, these first apps and testing out those kind of design patterns that were going to work on a device like the iPhone. Uh, were there any other things at that period which were really catching your attention and which kind of served as inspiration for things that you went on to then do with, uh, with those initial projects of your own?
2: Uh, do you mean like around the same time that the iPhone came out?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, thinking back uh, for me personally, there were a couple of kind of standout apps at the time which really started to show you the potential of what could be done on the device, several of which are no longer actually around. There was one, for instance, which um, really impressed me called Fluke, where they uh, put together these little cards about um points of interest but had done so using a design pattern which was just so much more compelling than the other stuff that was around on other mobile platforms at the time and although fluke itself never made it as a commercial success a lot of the ideas they kind of introduced and i'm just wondering from oh, yeah. your perspective when you <laughs> first started working on that that kind of stuff were there others which were catching your eye and, and getting your um, yes, inspiration going
2: definitely um i think um, in the earlier days, like, Path was definitely one of those apps that, again, like, didn't really go anywhere, but it was, like, this great, like, um, almost like a trade show of, like, design tricks and, like, cool cool ways to visualize things. Um, like, they had, like, the, the button that you press, and it spins out, like, five new buttons that you can then use. So that was, like, a cool pattern, which I actually have brought over into some of my work more recently. Um, I think, like, also at that time, like, around the time that the iPhone first came out, like I'd never really paid attention to the ways location could be used in products. And that's something that's always interested me, even though I've never, actually I have worked on a location based app as a side project, but um, haven't really focused too much in that area, but just the capabilities were something that really interested me a lot.
0: Well, I guess that was probably the initial reason for you and I meeting each other in the first yes. place was once you yep. started to work on these projects around introducing context awareness, not just location, but yes. also other forms of, of context and how that could influence the way you design. Uh, now, how did that opportunity come around? The, the company, as I remember, was Miso? Is that yes. the, the correct name? So, yeah. yeah.
2: The opportunity to work at that startup. Um, it actually, yeah, it came out because of, the, that first app that I had worked on at Intuit and sort of the press that it started getting so the CEO reached out to me and sort of asked if I would be interested in coming on as their first designer at the startup and I'd always been like kind of like a TV geek and like an entertainment nerd so I was very interested in working on that type of subject matter.
0: Uh, Now, that's interesting you said about being a a TV geek, because this is something I've kind of noticed, I think, as a bit of a pattern in in the work that you have done, is there is that kind of underlying interest in content in the the broadest sense. But it sounds like that was particularly strong around TV for you, as opposed to other media formats.
2: Yeah, I think at least I would say at that time, I think now it's definitely broadened a little bit more. But um, to just like kind of general I think general entertainment and content news even but yeah I think um, I mean TV is something that I just paid a lot of attention to growing up and I was very interested in pop culture especially in college um, I really enjoyed reading like almost like critical think pieces about like TV shows that people usually brush off as like not intelligent so it's kind of like a weird hobby but yeah so I was just very interested in working on that
0: I mean, it feels like there's a huge amount that the technology industry, for want of a better term, and the media industry could learn from each other. Because clearly there is something about uh, the way in which content is created and the way in which those content creators understand their audiences, which People within the tech business still kind of struggle to to get, and there needs to be those conversations. I think, and that kind of shared learning between those those two different industries.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, I will say, like when we when I worked at Miso, I think something that was frustrating was the yeah. There's definitely like a lack of communication, and I think on both sides, cause we found that all of these TV studios and even the, the networks that distribute the content, like, all, they're just, the technology is so old. Like, I think I, I remember talking at MEX about, like, this, this issue around, like, just the time of an episode. Of an episode of TV varies um, from the distrib- the networks versus, like, online video just because of commercials. And no one has, like, an accurate reading of how long a TV show is. anymore like, no one has that data.
0: Now, why was that important with Misa? Because for some of the listeners, they will, I think, have uh, seen your MEX talk either through the videos up on mobileuserexperience.com or being at the event itself, but there may be others who who weren't familiar with it. So can you just talk me through uh, the experience that you were creating there and why those time codes were important? (laughs) Yeah,
2: sure. So one of our, our main goals was to sort of facilitate conversation between friends around a TV show, knowing that most people are not watching those shows together anymore like that's sort of the modern consumption behavior and that everyone's watching shows at a different time like you could be watching six months apart like the same show so we wanted to be able to surface conversations that were tied to a particular moment in a tv show whenever you personally reached that moment and so in order to do that like the time stamps were important um but the, yeah, it's just like what you were getting from the networks included commercials, but if someone was watching on Hulu, then like the timing would be off based on that. So that's sort of why it was important. That
0: in some ways, I think speaks to how the consumption of video entertainment at least has changed quite considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, from a time when it was, if it was going to be a shared experience, it could only be a shared experience by physically being together in the same place at the same time. And we had these like big TV moments in history when you kind of knew yeah. that a whole country would be sitting down and, and watching things together. And yet now, of course, we are dealing with a very different media landscape. What sort of role do you think that mobile devices and these digital experiences can play in that and can go on to then shape that in the future and how we, we consume this content in a different way, but still as a shared experience.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely a movement actually back towards the shared experience right now, which is um, in live video, which is, I think it's really growing as a platform. Like apparently um, like young people like um, tend to really gravitate towards live video. And it's sort of replicating that original like live television moment where everyone tuned in at the same time.
0: So when we talk about live video, we thinking here of things like the the kind of personal broadcast apps, mm-hmm. like the Periscopes and cats, yep. that yes. kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Like Facebook has um, been like sort of investing pretty heavily in that and like soliciting celebrities to create the live content. So there's already a built in audience. Um, Buzzfeed has actually also been experimenting with Facebook live. So
0: and what do you think that adds to the equation when it comes to consumption, when you can have that kind of instantaneous live oh. moment? What does that do for the customer experience?
2: Well, I think the thing that we can do now that you couldn't do like 30 years ago with a television is that it's actually more of a conversation with the people watching. So, like, um, I know like when, when sometimes when BuzzFeed does the live video stuff, like they're soliciting questions and comments and they're actually responding to those questions live as well. So I think like, that's sort of where the opportunity is. Like, It's almost like letting the audience dictate where that piece of content is going.
0: So where do you see that extrapolating to? Because I'm starting to see things out there in the market now, like uh, a company called Quartz, where they're actually going to the extreme with that kind of design pattern. And they're using almost a conversational interface applied to content consumption. Do you think that's something that we're going to see more of in the market?
2: I think so. I mean, I feel like we're is right now, I actually feel like one of the issues is that it doesn't, it's not authentic enough in the sense that like it's very scripted, the actions that you can take, like the styling is like a conversation, but you can't actually ask any questions in that app yourself. Um, So I feel like in an ideal world to see it extrapolated, it would like the functionality would be there where you could actually ask people questions about the news and get actual responses. and I think that I guess like where that extrapolates to is just sort of the idea of content being more of a service to people, more of a way of answering a question.
0: Yeah, that's an intriguing way of thinking about it. And you use that word there, authentic as well, which is something I suppose has always been important in all forms of media. You know, thinking right back to traditional forms of media is that the audience feels there is an authentic voice behind what they're consuming Now, as someone who is involved in trying to create that in the digital sense, are there particular things that you look to to really be able to understand how you can feel authentic through those kind of design techniques that you use?
2: Yeah. I mean, something that we think about a lot now is trying to make sure that the designs that we do for BuzzFeed, which houses a lot of editorial content, is that none of our design work interferes with the message that the original author is trying to communicate. So we're trying to design the frame around the content, but not the content itself. And because of that, we try to stick to things that are very clean, like very unintrusive, not decorative in any way. Um, Cause we don't want, like if the author decides to use imagery, like we want to let that stand on its own. So there's like sort of that aspect of authenticity. And then I think, um, Again, it's like yeah, like working very closely with the writers and like trusting them because we tried to hire people as writers who are very authentic and can speak to certain audiences.
0: How much diversity do you see in the approaches that those authors take? I mean, how much scope do you need to to give each of those authors to be able to express themselves in a unique way through these interfaces?
2: A lot, yeah. Like I think we we definitely try to design formats and we try to design the CMS in a way that they can experiment with it and people are like, if they break things and they kind of create their own workarounds, like that's actually really great for us because it gives us a clear signal of the new things that we should be designing for them. So I think we do try to have, I guess we do want flexibility, but even having some built-in constraints is nice because we get to see how creative people are with those constraints.
0: So in a way, it sounds as if you're describing uh, designing for, at least two different constituencies here because obviously you have the uh, end consumers if you like of the buzzfeed content but also it sounds like you've got an equal if not harder task in designing the back end which enables your authors and your your content producers to actually convey their own voice to those end consumers
2: yeah yeah there's definitely two two sets and i think even even on the the consumer facing side the um, the authors, like as a collective, like still have a lot of influence in how that shapes out, because um, everyone might want to use a specific format. And by format, I mean just the way that an, a piece of information might be represented visually. People might want to use that in very different ways, and we have to make sure it works for all of them, and that the end result still matches what they had in mind.
0: So how much of a challenge was it for you personally when you joined BuzzFeed? to get yourself up to speed with just how diverse a range of behaviors there were in terms of how people were using the content as consumers and how people were actually authoring it. Because I'm guessing that's something which, you know, really is course your role is understanding uh, how those different behaviors play out and how you then respond to them. But did you find that um, a steep learning curve when you signed up?
2: Yeah, um, Yes. Yeah, because there are so, so many departments and they're growing all the time. Like when I joined our video team was a very sort of nascent, like small team. And now it's a huge, huge chunk of our business. Like half the company is working on video stuff. And so before there's like the editorial, like sort of written content constituency, but now there's also video producers, And because of that, I think it's a constant challenge. Like I've I've never felt like I've known everything or I ever really caught up because things are always changing and the people that are creating things change too.
0: And have you found that you've had to adopt new methods compared to what you're used to doing in previous roles to be able to understand the sort of behaviors that you've got to design for? Are there any sort of Go to techniques that you've found are, are really helpful in understanding Buzzfeed's unique audience.
2: Yeah, I mean we we've been doing user testing um, recently at Buzzfeed, which is something that I have done at my jobs in the past. But I think when it comes to the more like the internal constituents that we're trying to design for, the technique that I've used is to in, in, include them as much as possible in the actual design process. Because actually, when when they have an understanding of how many different different ideas and perspectives we're trying to accommodate. I think that also kind of helps them understand why we're making certain design decisions and they're able to sort of contribute to the conversation that way. Um, So it becomes in a way like they become less of a user and more of a designer with us, which I think is great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that sort of co-creative approach can be of, of huge value. And I suppose it's something which works both ways as well. I mean, have you had a chance as the designer to also try your hand at producing some content yourself to understand uh, yes. how that, that works from their perspective?
2: Yeah, I have. Um, yeah, I think like, one thing that's really nice is that like, there's a lot of freedom and flexibility to to do that. Um, like BuzzFeed's CMS is actually public, so anyone can create content. So I've Every year I try to write something um, or create create a post just to kind of, yeah, like to use the CMS itself and understand like what's working and what's not working, what's intuitive and what isn't and kind of, yeah, like put myself in their shoes. And it's funny because I I think the most daunting thing every time is I, I become more aware of how brave you have to be to be a content producer and like put stuff out there at such a large scale. So yeah, it's definitely good to step into their shoes.
0: What do you mean by being brave?
2: Um, Well, I mean, like BuzzFeed has such a huge baked in audience and it's a little daunting to like, you know, if you're writing something and it's a very personal thing or even if it's not personal, but it might be just like stating an opinion that maybe like not everyone agrees with or something like that. Like it's just you're inviting and you're opening yourself up to a lot of potential criticism and commentary So I think it's um, like that was just an interesting kind of emotional challenge with creating content and making it public that I experienced when I was writing stuff in our CMS.
0: And is that something which you can reflect in the way you start to change the design of those tools? Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. in some ways, that emotional process for content creators is one of the most important aspects to it i mean uh, yeah as you say there is a real emotional investment when you put anything out there through any platform especially when it's of the scale of of something like a buzzfeed are there things that you can do or you might try to do within those tools to help people with that process and to to smooth that part out or reassure people if you like
2: yeah i think like something that we have been um that it sort of comes up every now and then it's just like how we want to approach like the use of comments on our product or, um, when we even want to allow it because sometimes, um, sometimes when it is, we know it is going to be like a, a controversial piece or a sensitive topic that is being talked about. It's sometimes better to just disable comments on those. So that, that's something we think about from a, from a sort of technology and design perspective is like, how do we want to like format, not just format these, but like almost like present them, um, in a way that's also conscientious of the original author that's putting this out there.
0: So there's this term which we hear these days called the, the BuzzFeed generation. Now, I mean, clearly, you work at BuzzFeed at the moment. Mm-hmm. But personally, would you consider yourself to be part of the BuzzFeed generation as a consumer? And I mean, what what do you feel that actually means for, for individual mean- consumers?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess I would in the sense that I probably fit into a lot of the demographics that a BuzzFeed consumer would fit into um, naturally. So um, but I guess if I had to if I had to guess what people mean by that, oh man, I think it's probably about getting information in a really different way than maybe like your parents did. Um, or that people used to get information in. And I think it's like, it's about getting information from lots of different sources. Like BuzzFeed is not just a website or an app. Like, we, most of our traffic comes from Facebook, and, it's, and an increasing amount of traffic comes from Snapchat. So, a lot of times, like, yeah, it's in a way, I think like that, maybe that's what they mean. <laughs> just like having all these different platforms at your disposal to get information from.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the reason I ask the question is for me personally, I, I feel kind of like I'm on the cusp of being in the BuzzFeed generation, but maybe just a little bit too old to have properly got it. I, I'll freely admit I've never really um, properly understood BuzzFeed in the way that perhaps someone who's kind of native to that, that generation would. And yet clearly it has become huge very quickly. Uh, and I, I just wonder, you know, what sort of hunger if you like for that type of content that speaks to that sort of latent hunger that BuzzFeed has clearly tapped into um that has really captured people's imaginations to want to consume content in this different way in a way which has become you know th- this kind of generational phenomena
2: yeah I mean I think one thing that probably drives the hunger is uh something that um I think you know we talk a lot about at BuzzFeed is that we have a very optimistic editorial voice and like, the, generally the content, like, comes from a place of optimism rather than pessimism. And I, yeah, I, I wonder if maybe that's something that this generation is, is hungry for. I mean, it's a generation that is dealing with, like, more college debt than previous generations and a lot of other things that seem to be going wrong in the world. And maybe maybe what they want is, you know, just a little bit of optimism.
0: Yeah that that's a good point actually. I mean l- let's go back just a, a little bit actually because you mentioned the college and I I'm, I'm intrigued um for you personally whether you felt the kind of um education that you got equipped you for the sort of stuff that you're now having to design. I mean, this is something which comes up perennially at our MEX events, where we often have students involved through different partnerships that we have with universities working alongside people for industry. And it often leads to these quite interesting conversations about the kind of education that actually equips you to do interesting new things in digital. Uh, how did you find that? Personally, I mean, when you first started going out and working for the Intuits and the Mesos and the different startups you've been involved with, um, did you feel that uh, that was uh, an adequate um, uh, background, as it were, to be starting from?
2: Yeah, I, I, do, I do think it helped. I think, like, my background education helped a lot, but I think it actually, it wasn't about learning very specific design skills in a way. It was more like the fact that, I think that the school I went to, um, they taught they taught us a lot about design process and, like, an approach to solving problems, and I think that's what sort of opens you up so that no matter what the platform is, no matter how technology changes, like, you have a framework from which to approach addressing it, um, and also I think that, like, I, you know, there were so many opportunities to take on these sort of leadership roles at school. Like, I was involved in a lot of extracurricular activities, and I think if anything, like that's helped me just as much as the formal part of my education.
0: Yeah, that that sounds like a fairly common story, I think, that uh, willingness, if you like, for the individual to embrace the opportunities to broaden out parts of their education, either through the extracurricular stuff or through programs that are, are part of what the school is offering, and that that seems to be a pretty common foundation for those who then go on to do interesting and meaningful design work.
2: Yeah, no, totally
0: that So let's think a little bit towards the, the future because you and I were talking before we got started with the recording today um, about some of the things that might change in the way people consume digitally and I, I know this is something you've been thinking about for a good long time and we've done some thinking about with the the Mex initiative as well. Uh, but we were speaking a little bit about this idea of how consumption might change as it starts to break outside, if you like, the silos of individual media sources and media companies' content starts to exist on a range of different platforms in the way that for instance now a piece of content for a media outlet can actually become a thing in itself within Facebook, say, how do you feel that's going to play out over the next little while? What are the, some of the design challenges that that's going to present?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely something that, um, I think it's, it's definitely going in that direction where more content will live on those platforms because, because it's actually more valuable to the content creator that that happens. It's like, rather than trying to make people go through the challenge of coming Going out of their way to come to your site or your platform where content lives, you can you can take your plat or sorry your content to where the people are going already. Um, so it's valuable to them. I think the the part that is difficult as a designer um, that I don't know the answer to is like what there there's much less in your control in that scenario. It's sort of like then Facebook dictates the dis- like they they apply a lot of constraints to what you can do from a design perspective on their platform. Um, so like so we have like a lot of unique formats that only exist on BuzzFeed that aren't translatable to Facebook's instant articles that they they create. Well, it's,
0: it's interesting to think how perhaps that might end up reflecting on that uh, area of authenticity we talked about earlier yeah. and, and how you maintain that sort of authentic voice, despite the fact there are some now limitations, although, possibly also some additional possibilities in the way you present that content because you're no longer fully in control of the format
2: yeah I think I think it definitely also has an impact on even like just like the brand and like brand recognition like everything starts to look the same and and I think you're gonna find a lot of people who they're gonna think that this content is coming from Facebook and that Facebook is the content creator in fact when BuzzFeed was like early in, earlier in BuzzFeed's history, a lot of people thought that BuzzFeed was just like this Facebook thing. Um, and I think like as we got bigger, we sort of like broke out of that reputation. But I, I could definitely see um, people still believing that. <laughs>
0: Do you think that presents an additional challenge in terms of how you as the uh, originator, if you like, of the media content um, can then... Uh, still continue to understand the fine nuances of your consumer's behavior, because presumably it puts another kind of filter between the media owner and the consumer, which some of those filters may be better or worse than others at at allowing you to understand that behavior and see things like detailed analysis of where people are clicking, where people are looking. But will you need to evolve the kind of research methods that you use to, to track those behaviors and then design for them?
2: Yes, definitely, and that is something that we're thinking a lot about. Like, um, like we we've been thinking a lot about how to track a piece of content as it moves between different platforms. Like, if something um, maybe is originally shared to Facebook, like at what point does it branch out to Twitter, and like what happens from there? It's kind of like the journey of a piece of content. Um, I think what we actually have found is that a lot of things originate on Twitter, but they they grow on Facebook.
0: Let's um, add another layer of potential complexity to that if that was not already enough um, and think about what happens when this starts to involve multiple different device types as well because this is something which we're starting to see more and more of within the people involved in the, the MEX initiative is that they're being challenged to design pieces of media that don't just work well on traditional touchscreen devices like tablets and phones or things like laptops where you know we've become quite accustomed to those as digital formats they're now also being challenged to start to think about well what is the life of a piece of content or what elements of a piece of content may extend out into more esoteric formats like what that might mean for someone when they view it on a smartwatch or in a virtual reality headset and of course they're not just going to be replicated bits of the same content but there's potentially a connection between all of those different platforms which from a design perspective presumably ends up giving you a whole uh, nightmare more of complexity to deal with.
2: <laughs> yeah no definitely that's definitely something that we've we've thought a lot about like we we actually we launched a watch app last year that is completely different from anything you would find in the BuzzFeed app and I think that was a, was a very intentional decision to not try to replicate like, how do you read a BuzzFeed article on a Watch app? Like, it's not going to be a great experience. So we sort of, um, we actually created this sort of, like, virtual pet instead. So it's, it's basically a game. And the idea is, like, it's still in the spirit of BuzzFeed, but it's a different type of, it's a different content type entirely that sort of fits that platform. And I, and I imagine the same thing would happen for VR, which we just started to think about, is, like, creating new types of content for those platforms.
0: Do you think we're going to see additional generational leaps in how those experiences evolved? Because I think what you're describing with BuzzFeed sounds like um, something we've noticed is relatively common as people experiment with this stuff, is that they realize that you can't just replicate something. So they look to do something which is true to the brand values, say, of, of the particular app or background that they're coming from, but not um, essentially linked to existing pieces of content or the the existing experience they do it becomes something sort of separate as an experiment but do you think there's a generation beyond that where we start to actually join up all of those different platforms all those different touch points within users lives and start to find ways that say a piece of content which exists on buzzfeed on the web in the traditional sense also has some kind of life that can be tapped into from, say, a watch or a VR headset or, or any of those other platforms.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's actually, that is something that we we have already seen at BuzzFeed where it's like um, there, there's something that might originate as a post on the website. And then there are parts of that post that could get translated into like an illustration that ends up on Instagram or it or, um, could be a, an animated thing that ends up on Vine or that same original like list of content that same content piece could become a video that lives on YouTube or Facebook, so we 've only seen like this it's like the same sort of idea being communicated in different ways on different platforms
0: going back to the theme of context awareness, which I guess is where you know you had some real early interest in this whole era of, of mm-hmm. mobile. Uh, I wonder if that also opens up some more interesting possibilities around that because not only, obviously, are people able to consume these things on multiple different touch points, it also then, as a, a designer, as a provider of media content, gives you access to that greater range of inputs and, and sensors from all these different devices that people may be interacting with, which potentially can be rolled back into influencing that media experience in some way.
2: Yeah, I know definitely. I mean, something we... We didn't. Uh, we didn't end up actually doing this, but when we were, we launched a news app last year, and we were playing around with ideas for the the watch app component of the news app. And there are definitely things around like um, if we get like you know, like sensing mood and like delivering news based on a based on the mood. Um, the sad part is you can't really control what the news is. Uh, you can't control what the important news is delivered. But the idea that like if someone you know, like if their heart rate was like um, you know, signify that they were stressful. Like, is there like an optimistic piece of news that you could deliver?
0: It's an interesting thought, the the cheer me up button for the news app. I think that could be a winner.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But then it's like, you know, if there's really important things happening, people have to know about them. (laughs)
0: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I remember from your talk at MEX, I mean, that was one of the first principles that you really stressed with building the the context-aware system for Misa was that idea that you build something which provides the the kind of core experience to a a level of really good usability and user experience without any kind of contextual input. And then you add layers of contextual possibility on top of that. So you're always building, if you like, from a point of of strength. That seemed to be the principle, as I recall. Yep, yeah. Thinking to the future for you personally, uh, I mean, I guess mobile has been a big part of the uh, your career so far. But when you think about what might come next, are there any sort of new platforms or technologies emerging which really excite you and are things that you could imagine wanting to design for in the future?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely very, very interested in VR. Um, it sounds like, I think because, I mean, something that I've always liked about designing for mobile devices is that they are very personal devices. So there's like this level of um, emotional intelligence that you have to keep in mind when designing for mobile. And I think that's almost even more so true for VR because it's like you're giving someone the ability to like step in the shoes of someone else. So I think there's also a strong emotional component there, which interests me.
0: And have you had a chance to check out any of the VR systems yourself?
2: yeah i've I've played around with the oculus I haven't made anything but I've tried them out um it's pretty cool and yeah the thing is like i when I tried it there were like some games that were like um or like you're on a roller coaster and that was that was interesting, but it was actually like they they had some like sample documentaries where it's like you're like in the shoes of a person in Syria, and that I thought was like way more interesting um and like resonated a little bit more with me so I think that's an area I think that um BuzzFeed, we do a good job in general of like trying to highlight um, underrepresented voices and like uh, highlight these perspectives and VR would allow us to do that to a a much more personal degree. Yeah, I think there are some
0: exciting possibilities there. I mean, a a question for you. How how did you feel when you then went back to viewing content on your smartphone just after you'd been using the... uh, the VR headset did it change the way you felt about the content on the smartphone
2: yeah a little bit in the sense that like um like I thought when when I was like watching that I, I it's almost weird to actually say that it was watching a movie because it didn't feel like that when you're using VR it doesn't feel like you're watching a movie it feels like you're um like you have freedom of choice in a way like in you can choose what direction you're looking and like where you want to go in a way so yeah, it's almost like, yeah, it's like just, yeah, it does feel really different because you're not watching a movie in VR.
0: We did some user testing with the uh, Galaxy Gear VR Innovator Edition last year, and it was really interesting to see those kind of reactions from users when they, they came from having experienced some of the VR content. And like you say, the documentaries seem to particularly resonate with people when they're looking at at that kind of content and then it was almost like they came back and looked at video content on flat screens in a bit of a different way afterwards that they sort of understood that there was now a new level of immersive entertainment that was coming and that the content they were seeing on that flat screen didn't quite feel the same anymore
2: yeah no I mean I think like I was just thinking that kind of sort of in between experience right now is like there's a lot of video games that are they're basically movies like they're just um like pure storytelling but there's just the fact that they give you choices in between like certain moments like i think like firewatch which came out recently is a lot like this like it's a pretty linear story but you just have a little bit of freedom to like go where you want to go in a world and um And yeah, I was like, I feel like I'm just watching a movie, but it's better than just watching a movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can be involved, I guess, in ways that just aren't possible uh, in the the world of film. At least they haven't been to date. But I wonder whether this is something which is actually going to inspire the next generation of filmmakers to start to think about their medium in in different ways. Now, for you uh, personally, you've always been, I guess, on the, the side of, creating the platforms and the the technology which shapes these experiences would you ever have any ambitions of getting involved on the actual content production side of things particularly as something like vr emerges and there are those new opportunities to play around with uh, with content
2: oh yeah definitely i think that um yeah because i think like i even though i have always sort of been on more of the like behind the scenes side like i think as i've grown in my career like I've been more comfortable with like like I've realized that I'm developing like really strong opinions about things and I want to share that and it makes me feel a little bit more like a content creator in a sense because I want to put things out there that are pure content or like pure opinion and and so like yeah like definitely really interested in like filmmaking or writing or, or anything like that.
0: Well, I'll be looking forward to seeing how that that works out. Perhaps we'll be getting a a Sabrina Majid directed film or or VR experience in the future. (laughs)
2: Amazing, yeah.
0: Definitely something to look forward to. Look, Serena, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's it's been a fascinating and broad discussion. Yes,
2: me too. Thank you so much.
0: finish today's edition with another user story. This is part of our ongoing series at mobileuserexperience.com where we uncover surprising and intriguing bits of user behavior that we've observed in the real world. This one continues our episode's theme of how people consume content and I hope will dispel any lingering myths you might have about age being a barrier to consuming in interesting ways. Try to describe the scene for you because I think it's important to understand the context in which this particular user story took place. So, imagine it's an autumn morning, one of those first ones of the year where it's getting a bit chilly but it's still dry and bright, and you're at a bus stop in the middle of the countryside. Now, buses only run from this stop twice a day and they take you a journey of perhaps an hour or so into the local market town. And there, if you like, you can pick up another bus a little while later, and that takes you another hour on until you get to the nearest major city. And standing at this bus stop are two ladies. One of them is in her late 70s. She's got a headscarf pulled tightly around her face to shield herself from the the cold and the wind. And the other is a bit younger, I'd say, perhaps, in her early 50s. And they're stood by this bus stop together. And they're in the middle of a pretty heated conversation. So the older of the two ladies is explaining, well, it was £17 and then it went up to 27 And now I'm on 40 a month just for my sports, she told this, uh, this companion of hers. And the young lady says to her, well, £40 is a lot just for your sports. And this conversation circled around quite a few times, always kind of getting at this issue of the cost. And what they were talking about was the cost of the TV service. Now, the older lady, it turns out, was subscribed to this Sky Satellite sports service. Uh, And it kept coming back to this thing of, well, £40 is a lot. And that's what the other one kept repeating. And it seemed like they knew each other well enough that they could be talking about the price and and money issues, but not really quite so well enough. Perhaps they were neighbours or acquaintances rather than good friends. That The younger one didn't really feel like she could say what she obviously really thought, which was that this older lady perhaps was being ripped off or had been sold one of these complex packages of TV content uh, where she was probably getting a lot more stuff than she'd actually intended uh, and was being overcharged for it. But the old lady was absolutely adamant about this, though, and she pulls the headscarf tighter around her chin and she looks off into the the distance to watch and and wait for the approaching bus. And she said very definitively, no, no, that's it. All I got is the sports. And they want the money for the aerial and for the box. And yeah, she was clearly not having a good customer experience with this firm, whoever it was who had sold her this uh this tv package so her companion i guess saw that her her mind was made up and she tried a bit of a different approach and tried to put a bit more a positive slant on things and she says to her well of course it's good for the winter though isn't it with the winter coming you've got all of your programs you know, even the foreign ones uh and then come the summer when you don't need it so much you can just cancel them and this was where my interest really started to pick up in, in the conversation because of course what we're seeing across digital media consumption generally is this transition this generational transition to paying for things with ongoing subscriptions rather than paying for individual pieces of media content uh, and in the music world you see this manifest with things like Spotify and Apple's new uh, subscription music service taking the place of things like iTunes and just in the last year or so depending on whose metrics you believe we're starting to actually see greater revenues coming from those subscription services than from the the one-off services and that seems to be true across music and uh, and video and increasingly things like gaming as well and what it's giving rise to is a behavior that is known as subscription surfing where essentially customers can jump from service to service to take advantage of the best deals and particularly with things like music For a lot of customers, there's really very little difference in the content that they can get access to. Almost all of the big services have access to almost all of the big tracks. So while there might be a bit of variation in the catalogues or in the interface, uh, for the average customer, you can just hop from service to service wherever the price is best uh, and take them up on these free trial offers or, or discount deals and then just cancel and move to the next one you can keep going like that for some time and in fact with a lot of them when you cancel they then send you email offers in your inbox trying to get you to come back where you'll receive further discounts on them now this is a behavior which is much more prevalent among younger customers or those who are generally more tech savvy. And yet here in the middle of the British countryside, we have a couple of people in a much older demographic who are exhibiting this same behavior and actually seem from their conversation to be quite savvy uh, about those options that are open to them. And the older lady, the one wearing the headscarf in her 70s, agreed with this. Oh, yes, she said. And she already knew all about that it seemed Um, and that she was planning ahead to the summer where she'd likely be outdoors more or seeing her friends more often and not needing uh, the content to keep her entertained while she was sheltering from the winter at home that she was going to cancel this and and cut off that company's revenue stream until she wanted those sports back again Uh, so Already there'd been some quite interesting insights out of this chance observation at the bus stop, but then the conversation took a final unexpected turn, uh, and it turns out that TV wasn't the only form of entertainment which had uh, been occupying this particular pair. They got on to talking about gaming. Now remember, this is uh, a lady in her late 70s, uh, and another lady, um, again, uh, probably in her her mid or or early 50s, uh, and the... Older lady said, Well, my daughter said to me the other day, Well, why don't you play your games instead? You know, instead of uh, relying on this TV sports subscription package. And she said, Well, I had to say to her, Well, I'd forgotten I even had the games. Uh, And then her daughter had said to her, Apparently, "Um, Well, you need one of those tablets. Um, But then the older lady had replied back and said, Well, I've got my Game Boy and I certainly don't need no tablet. So They carried on talking about the various uh, merits of tablets and particularly how they used them or could use them as photo viewers and and the best ones for that to catch up on photos from the family. But it was about then that the uh, the bus um, arrived uh, at its destination. And off they went on their their separate ways, I guess in pursuit of a rather different form of consumption, going off to the traditional greengrocers and butchers and fishmongers, which still dominate the high street in this market town, rather than uh, the giant supermarkets. That's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. A reminder that you can find show notes linking to everything we talked about in the podcast section at mobileuserexperience.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider doing a couple of things. Firstly, you can search for it to subscribe from your favorite podcast player by looking for Mech's Design Talk, and please encourage your friends to do the same. And if you've particularly enjoyed what you've heard, we'd very much appreciate a five-star rating in the iTunes review section. This helps others to discover the podcast by bumping it up the ratings and we'd be very grateful for your reviews and feedback. Goodbye.